We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Okay, we're rolling. So, as I mentioned, I've been here for 25 years at the oratory, and when I was uh, a novice, uh, Father Drew, uh, who was a young priest at that point, gave me a Christmas gift of the Philokalia. The first three volumes were in print at that point, and then I didn't have the foggiest idea of what it was all about, uh, yet I did have a strong interest in monastic life and monastic spirituality. And it turned out to be one of the greatest gifts I've ever received. And ever since then, I've tried to immerse myself in the study of the writings of the, the Desert Fathers in, in one way or another. And uh, it's been very challenging because it's a different approach to the spiritual life. The language that they use is very different. So it has really taken to two decades to uh, gain some clarity in that regard and how they are approaching the spiritual life. It's much different than our Western spiritual tradition. It's monastic spirituality. And this is seen as something that is applicable to monks and laity alike. So it's a much uh, more, uh, uh, there's a homogeneity, I would say, in their spirituality and their approach to spirituality. Whereas within the Western tradition, there are many different charisms, many different s spiritual s schools that one might follow or embrace or feel more inclined to, to, uh, to follow. And so it's a much different way of approaching the spiritual life. But I found it uh, immensely rich. And um, so that's sort of my, my history with it over, over the years. Um, I've had the opportunity to travel. Uh, not to Athos, where, where this was produced, but to, uh, to Egypt and to visit some of the monasteries there and, and uh, see firsthand how the life is, is lived. And so I've, I've had that small opportunity to do that as well. Uh, what I'd like to do this semester is simply to familiarize you with the uh, Philokalia, or as Pittsburghers call it, the Philokalia. That's... <laughs> what I've been calling it for 20, 25 years. So either is acceptable in this group, and so whichever you prefer is easier to say is fine. Um, so what, where was I here? I'm a little lost and befuddled. So um, anybody help me out here? What was I just talking about? <laughs> you got them as a gift. I got them as a gift from Father Drew. So I began studying them at that point, right, and found myself very attracted uh, to their understanding of um, uh, seeking to purify the heart, to transform or purify the passions, their understanding of unceasing prayer, how it is that we seek that, the use of the Jesus prayer in particular, I found myself attracted to. And the Philokalia is uh, filled with such teachings. 
It's a little bit challenging to read. It's usually short sayings, uh, so it's not meant to be read straight through. Typically, you would read uh, a couple of the sayings and stop and meditate upon them. Um, what I'd like to do this evening is talk just uh, to give a little introduction and talk to you about the history of its of its development, which is is very rich. And I think just knowing this will help us approach the the, the themes of the philokalia, philokalia, in the the weeks and months to come. Um, Take a look at the, the book here. It begins with the introduction on, on numeral six. He says, one of the many great treasures bequeathed to us by sacred tradition is the Philokalia, an anthology of spiritual writings by some 30 church fathers from the fourth to the 15th century. It was compiled by Saints Macarios and Nicodemus on Mount Athos in 1777 and printed in five volumes. Uh, the first volume in English uh, was published in 1978 here in the United States. So it's the first that we had access to. So it's relatively recent that we've had the opportunity, uh, re relatively recent times that we've had the opportunity to, to read it. Uh, Marcarius came to uh, Mount Athos in the 18th century and spent time there. And we really don't know who had the, the greatest influence in the production of the work. We know that Macarius began the work in the libraries on Mount Athos and found the writings basically moth-eaten and covered in dust in the libraries. And so he had decided uh, to uh, pull them together, begin to tra translate or rewrite things, and then uh, pass this on to Nicodemus uh, a number of years later. And Nicodemus is the one who then gives us a little biography of each of the writers. So as you go through the text of the Philokalia, you'll see before uh, each of the author's work a little write-up and a background on them. And so he's, we know, is at least responsible uh, for that work. But other than that, we don't know a whole lot of how it came, to get, came together, other than the fact that they both worked incredibly hard and long hours to, to pull this all together. But to see it in its, its context, I think, is helpful and something that we'll, we'll probably understand very well, that the development of the Philokalia was very much a, a resource mont, a return to the sources, a return to the patristics, to the, the fathers of the church, and this is something that the Second Vatican Council has called us to do as well, that we would return to the sources of our tradition and allow them again to enrich us so that we might practice the faith with a greater fullness. And so there was something similar going on uh, within Orthodoxy at that time, and in particular on Mount Athos. There was uh, a group of monks called the Kolovades. And they had a particular desire for renewal, uh, especially among the monks. And it, it was really threefold. The first was to have a more faithful observance of the liturgical practices and traditions. So part of their desire was to look again closely at the, how liturgy was engaged uh, within the Orthodox Church and to, and, and having this deeper understanding then to enrich
the practice of it. So very similar to what the council was supposed to do for us. I'm not sure if we're quite quite there yet, but uh, to look at our, our roots, uh, the roots of the liturgy, to renew it that we might be able to engage in it more fully. Uh, the, the second uh, desire of this group of monks was uh, patristic renaissance, and that is to go back to the church fathers in order to, to learn from them about the spiritual life. And that's where St. Marcarius and St. Nicodemus come into play. The, the two of them in particular were at the forefront uh, of this effort. And then thirdly, uh, there is uh, an emphasis on what is called hesychasm, which we'll get to as we look at the themes of the philokalia, which is uh, uh, the desire uh, or the end of the spiritual practices, which is stillness of heart, uh, silence of heart, stillness of heart, where, wherein one can listen to God on a deeper level, be purified, have one's passions purified in such a way that there is a greater capacity than to enter into a union with God. So it was really these three basic ideas that was driving this uh, renewal uh, within, within orthodoxy at the time. And it actually spurred uh, something similar within the Orthodox Church beyond uh, the Greek Orthodox Church, but also in, in Russia as well. And we see its greatest growth there, I think even more so than, than on Mount Athos. There was uh, a visitor to uh, Mount Athos is now, sorry about the pronunciation, maybe somebody could help me out. His name is St. Passius uh, Velashovsky, and he translated the Philokalia into Slavonic. And then there's sort of this Eastern movement with, with the writings, and then ultimately uh, to the restoration of the monastic life within, within Russia. And he was of a different opinion than Macarius and Nicodemus. Nicodemus saw the Philokalia as not limited only to monks. This was a spirituality for the whole of the church. So all, all of us would be able to glean from their wisdom and apply it to our own life. And so we'll, we see Nicodemus, even in the introduction of, to the Philokalia, saying, this is not only a monastic thing. This is for... The best is for everyone. And so it's, it's, it's published with the idea that it would be read by all, whereas St. Apasius was of a different opinion. He translates it into Slavonic and, in an attempt to keep it more monastic at that point or within the monasteries. And it wasn't until uh, later under someone named St. Theophan the Recluse, his name might be, familiar to you, who tra he translates it into Russian, and then it becomes more accessible. And so the basic, uh, there have only been four of the volumes of the Philokalia published in English, and I have them here if you want to take a look at them, to take a look, look at them before you leave. And then there's, there's supposed to be five altogether, but two of the translators have already passed away. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the one of the, the last one is, uh, Callistus Ware, and it doesn't seem like there is a movement afoot to publish that or get that last volume translated, unfortunately. Everybody's been waiting for it, but it's still not accessible to us unless you, you know, speak a different language, of course. But, and then there's also been a single volume 
that's been published that is called uh, The Philokalia on Prayer of the Heart. And it's specific writings that delve into the practice of the Jesus prayer in particular, the sort of the heart of the spirituality of the Philokalia. And um, the, the writings within that text is what we might actually approach, say, in the next semester. Uh, if you ever read a work called The Way of the Pilgrim, is anybody familiar with that here? Uh, it's about a, a layman who has this, develops this great desire to embrace a life of holiness, but also to embrace the teaching from the scripture to pray without ceasing. So he has this great desire to learn the Jesus prayer and how, how to practice it in day-to-day -day life. And he comes in contact with a, a starets, uh, sort of a spiritual master who then tells him about the Philokalia and he is eventually able to find the copy of it in Russian. And he begins to travel around country as a, as a pilgrim practicing the Jesus prayer and so it's popularized in particular through through this uh, through that writing but within that text the way of the pilgrim uh, he asked the spiritual master what books would you read from the Philokalia which writers would you start with and he gives him a list of about a half a dozen of the authors and the, those are the ones that are compiled in this single volume and so I thought if we actually make it through this group and it hasn't shrunk down to a few people <laughs> by the end of the semester, perhaps we could move on uh, to this text as our introduction as well. And I think it has more of a focus obviously on prayer and it might be more of an interest uh, than trying to go through all the four volumes that have been published and pull out segments for ourselves. Now I will, uh, as we go through the semester, looking at the Philokalia Thematically, I will present you with excerpts from the text that illustrate what, what the authors are, are talking about. Uh, but I think in the future, it would be nice if we could delve a little more deeply into the writings after we've uh, familiarized ourselves with how they use language and how they're approaching the spiritual life. Uh, there's also two volumes here from the Russian translation. is called The Little Russian Philokalia, and you could take a look at these before you leave as well. Their focus is more on the ascetical life, so the practice of the spiritual life. Whenever Velashovsky uh, uh, and then Theophan translated them, they moved away from some of the more theological and th uh, theoretical philo philosophical writings that were in the Greek version and focused more on the practical aspects of the philokalia, how it is that we live this life, the ascetical life that's tied to it in the, in the prayer life and how one goes about embracing that. Okay, any questions before we move on? That was a lot. I just drank an espresso before the group, so <laughs> I'm moving pretty quickly here. So it's a very, very rich history and uh, it had an enormous effect upon the Orthodox Church, and in, in particular, the revitalization of monasticism, which had been completely crushed in Russia. And so we have the renewal of you know, monasteries there, and, uh, you know, and also the renewal of uh, the study of the Philokalia. What was the time period for the move from Greece to Russia? When that was translated? Uh, would have been within a century. The Greek one was late 18th century, so it would have been 19th century that uh, Velashovsky 
Well, actually, Velashovsky was in the uh, 18th century as well. So he makes the, the movement already almost coinciding with, and even in some ways preceding Macarius and Nicodemus in his own work. But then he takes what they've done and then edits it, translates it into Slavonic, and takes it eastward. And then it's, it's really uh, then throughout that next century that it filters into, the, as the monastic life is renewed, it filters into the monasteries. And then once it's published in Russian and then popularized by the way of the pilgrim and even uh, through the writings of Dostoevsky that, you know, that uh, I think people are, you know, turn, turned on to the Philokalia or the Philokalia. I'm going to do that over and over again. Sorry about that. But uh, at least in terms of knowing about it. There has been a strong interest, I think, in, in the United States. But it's interesting. Whenever I've talked to Orthodox friends and Orthodox priests, there is sort of a wariness about it. Because there is this sense that we find, that we did find among the, the, the Russians, that it is more of a monastic thing and that there are certain aspects of it that might be dangerous to approach or lead to misunderstanding if approached in uh, a haphazard kind of way and or without a spiritual guide. And so there has been within the tradition a certain hesitancy to make use of it at all and even among some of the clergy saying, no, I don't read that. There are other works that we can approach the spiritual life that are, are easier to follow and that might not lead to, to misunderstanding. So there's almost a wariness about approaching it at all and not uh, a sense of not encouraging people to take it up. And I understand that. And certainly after struggling with it you know, for 20-some years, that there are parts of it that are very, very challenging. But the beauty of it and uh, the extraordinary spiritual te teachings that are available, I think, far outweigh the dangers. And especially when we do have an opportunity, I think, to slowly approach it and to unpack it for ourselves, to, to look at how they're using the language, then the danger of that, I think, begins to, to lessen. Okay. Any other thoughts or questions before we move ahead? You talk about monastic. What did you mean by that? Seems like monastic. Well, right, rising out of the monastic life. That you know, after the persecutions of the church end, uh, uh, so where there was a baptism in blood, if you will, that was taking place. You know that Christians were being persecuted, and after that ceases, there was still a great desire among those to live this holy, holy life, a life of sacrifice. And so what we see is a movement to sort of a baptism of asceses or of asceticism. And so there is a movement out into the deserts of Egypt, for example, of, of those seeking to live a, a life wholly dedicated to God, you know, stripped down from anything that might pull them away from, from him. And so they move out into the depths of the desert, into the deep solitude there to do spiritual battle. And it's out of that interior spiritual battle and struggle that we gain their wisdom. They, in my mind, they were the first depth psychologists. They really came through that solitude and their deep prayer and their struggle with their own passions to understand the workings of the human mind and heart very well. And so as we go through some of these readings, I think you'll be surprised at some of the, the, the depth 
of them. But this is how it really begins, you know, this movement out into the desert after uh, the persecutions cease. And uh, they weren't completely uh, separated from the world. Oftentimes there would be a movement back to it or they would be asked uh, to move back to help the church in some way or people would go out to them in the desert to seek counsel from them. So, so, so much had they become known for the great, their great wisdom and great holiness. So the spirituality itself then that emerges is rightly called monastic because they were living this uh, monastic life, often first in community for years and then moving out into a deeper solitude after they had been formed uh, in the communities in the ways of, of humility and obedience and after they had been under the counsel of a, a wise teacher or master for years then they would typically move out into the greater solitude so that they could have uh, an experience of deeper prayer and intimacy with God. But it's their, their writings, I think, come, become more familiar to the West through a, a saint called uh, St. John Cassian. And he went with uh, a fellow monk uh, from a monastery in the West to live with the desert monks in Egypt to learn their wisdom. And so his experiences are taken down in what are called the conferences of John Cassian or the Institutes. And we did have a group on Cassian's conferences here in the past, and uh, they're beautiful. But he put them in a language that I think would be understandable for the Western mind and for the Western monk. And so after living for so many years in Egypt, he brings this wisdom back in his writings, especially for a monastery's beginning in, in France. And so there is this connection between the, the East and the West very early in regards to this uh, spirituality of the Philokalia, and it's through Cassian, and his writings are still widely read, especially among you know, Benedictine monastic communities that is still part of their formational reading that they would, they would turn to him. Yes? As, as we begin this, are there any uh, words that we should just have in our head or any ideas, um, major differences between the Eastern Orthodox spirituality and Western spirituality that well, we're going to encounter immediately? Uh, I think it's, I think maybe you came in after I had mentioned it, that it's, okay, <laughs> that it is, there is a, a more of a single path in their view of the spiritual life in the East, that uh, it is this monastic spirituality that begins in the desert that then flows out into the West, rest of the church. And so this would also, the, the struggle with the passions, for example, ascetical pra practices of fasting, keeping vigil, seeking to pray without ceasing, all the things that we find in this teaching are to be embraced by laity and monk alike. So we living in the world are still called to a life of holiness. And so we would, you know, whether or not we're wearing the habit or, or working in the world, we're still called to pray and to foster this prayer without ceasing. We're still called to fast. It might be within the context of our station in life, but nonetheless, there's still this radical call to holiness. So it's a much more of a single track, whereas in the West, we find the development of varying charisms that often arise out of monastic life as well, Benedictine, Franciscan, and then the, you have the 
the contemplative communities, the Carmelites, the Carthusians, and you know, uh, Franciscan, did I say Franciscans already? So there's much more of a diverse kind of spirituality and diverse charisms with, within the West, which is, is very rich, but uh, I think in some ways it can make it a little confusing for us. Uh, there is something quite beautiful about this sort of straightforward uh, approach uh, to, to the spiritual life. And because I think it does emphasize this universal call to holiness. It's not just the clerics or nuns or sisters who are called to a, a life of deep prayer and holiness. It's all of us who have been baptized into Christ. And so we're all called to embrace the ascetical life in one form or another. And so to immerse ourselves in the spirituality. And sometimes in the West, I think that we can fall into this kind of clericalism and that isn't often healthy. And where we do then, you know, place the spiritual life on those who have embraced the consecrated life or the life of the priesthood. And for some, you know, that, but those living in the world somehow aren't called to that. And so often, especially when there's a lack of catechesis or discussion about the spiritual life, you know, one can be left to wander or to, you know, pick and choose from various traditions that are attractive to them or, you know, their inclinations, but not a real solid or clear vision of the spiritual life. And I think, you know, my inclination, inclinations always led me to the study of monasticism. So I think even as an oratorian, right from the beginning, that was part of my spirituality. And so I gravitated to that, but it was sort of the simplicity of it, that the, the simple sayings, that they didn't, they didn't digress. You know, in, they weren't theologians in the sense that we would think about them, think about a theologian. That what they were interested in was living a life of holiness, of sanctity. And so their writings are, are very clear and simple in that regard, whereas if you're reading somebody like Augustine, He'll take you all over the place and down dead ends just for the heck of it because it's beautiful. And then, you know, uh, so it's, it's a much different approach to things. But I've always, personally, I, I've liked that straightforward approach to the, the spiritual life and have found it to be very fruitful for me. Uh, the other reason I, I think I was attracted to it is because Philip Neary was, too. And when I became a novice, and after Father Drew gave me these books, we would read through the life of St. Philip Neri, and it would often mention the things that he would read. And the two, two of his favorites were the Conferences of John Cassian and the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Calamicus. And so he had immersed himself in the studies of these, and even when he was aging, he would have somebody read them to him when he was ill, and saw himself, even characterized himself, as a desert monk living in the city. And so even as a layman, when he comes to Rome, he's, you know, he doesn't become ordained until he's 35 years old. In the first 10 years of his life there, he's immersed down in the catacombs in the deepest kind of silence, almost like a desert in the city, engaged in this similar kind of spiritual warfare, even before you know, he's ordained to the priesthood. And so he had a very clear understanding, I think, of this, you know, well before his time of this universal call to holiness. So he wasn't moving quickly into holy orders. What he was most concerned about 
was following the, the guide of the Holy Spirit in his life to live a life of holiness. And so in coming to Rome, that's exactly what he did. So I was intrigued right there from the beginning here in the West and the founder of our community here was deeply immersed in the spirituality of, of these desert, desert fathers. Okay. Any other thoughts? I just have some confusion. This week we've been reading the letter of St. John and basically saying that God is love. Mm -hmm. And the way that we know that God is in us is by giving that love to others. Mm -hmm. Because we can't give God back love because that's, that makes sense. So in a sense, I mean, uh, what, are, what are these desert fathers doing out there by themselves? Mm -hmm. how are, they're, they're not passing God's love. Or, I, I, how are they doing that? Well, I think by doing that, it's an interior battle that they're engaged in, as the battle was no longer an exterior, exterior thing in terms of being persecuted by the culture, that they were ent entering into uh, more of a hidden kind of martyrdom. And so they move into the solitude and embrace this life of asceticism, deep prayer, obviously understanding that this wasn't meant for the bulk of Christianity, but for relatively few people. But it's a reflection, I think, of an aspect of the life of the body of, of Christ, or of the life of Christ himself, who immersed himself all night in prayers, who fasted and, and embraced these practices himself. And so they become, you know, I think, uh, a living uh, aspect of the life of the body for us and then also a source uh, of wisdom for the rest of the church as well. As I said, they didn't completely isolate themselves, that people would go out to them and engage them about the, the spiritual life. I think now we have, in, in the sense, cloistered who might not engage people at all, and that wasn't always the case with them. In fact, we find some of them leaving the solitude of the desert altogether to go back in uh, to the cities to engage the church if it was being, you know, struggling with a particular heresy, you know, that they might be asked to return in order to offer counsel and guidance or to take up some role and then return to the solitude later again. Okay. And didn't they live in community, the majority of them? I mean, there were some in the first century or two of monasticism that lived as hermits, and mm -hmm. then St. Pacomius created the first community of monks because he realized that for even the majority of monks, they shouldn't be totally hermits, you know, right. so they came together, whether it was once a week or once a day for right. prayer or for, you know, yeah. some sort of community. Right. And there, there was a clarity that, that's right, that developed very early that the common life was where you learned the ABCs of the spiritual life and of the monastic life. And so that was sort of like grammar school and you'd engage in the spiritual life, live under obedience to a spiritual guide for for years before one would even think about entering into solitude because there were real dangers in doing so that one could fall into delusion and uh, in going off into the desert and and you hear stories when you read the lives of these desert fathers that that often did happen so I think they they did learn very quickly that you know uh, formation had to take place and that one wouldn't enter into that more radical solitude uh, you know, in an unthinking way. Good, good question, though. Okay. Anything else? Mm -hmm. What's the range of dates for the writings that are included? Fourth to the fifteenth century. <coughs> oh, okay. so, so it spans quite a bit span. of time, right? 
and St. Maximus the Confessor uh, makes up the, the bulk, or he's the largest portion and in terms of uh, the amount of writing that's in, included in, in it. Now, this, the Philokalia isn't the only or the first uh, that was called the Philokalia. There was a much earlier version written by some of the uh, early uh, fathers of the church and uh, various versions throughout history, but this is the one that has become you know, more well-known, especially through the, the way of the pilgrims, the way of the pilgrim, and then through you know, the, the practice and, and embrace of it in the monastic life. And the one, the, the, the bulk of the writing, he dates when? Uh, I'd have to look that up myself. I don't know off the top of my but head. Sorry. Earlier yeah. or later? I think a little bit later, later than, yeah, it wasn't one of the earliest ones. In, in terms of ecumenicalism, what is the, what is the, the Catholic Church's view on uh, Unorthodox saints, mm -hmm. and it's a little bit off subject. Yeah. Well, I posted a couple things. If you're on Facebook, <laughs> yeah. uh, from John Paul II, especially in regards to our relations with the Eastern Orthodox, but also uh, in relation to the spiritual life and the Philokalia, okay. and he's very clear that this is part of our heritage as well, and that there's something essential here that has perhaps even been lost to us. In, in the West, and that they've, in the East, have preserved it. And so it's to our benefit to enter into close relations with our Orthodox brothers and sisters and in order to gain this wisdom for ourselves again. And he specifically holds up the Philokalia as being the heart and soul of that spirituality. As, mm -hmm. as, far, as, the, as far as the teaching of the spirituality, but mm -hmm. specifically in, in devotion to saints, Mm -hmm. um, do you know? I, mean, I, I know that you know that the the, church, the Orthodox Church is the second lung, right. you know, the other the other lobe. Um, but what is you know when we look at these when we look at these saints, mm -hmm. these Eastern saints, can we regard them as such, or is it something that we should look on more as spiritual teachers or as a apt theologian? No, I think we can look upon them as as saints, and we do. There is some overlap. Certainly, especially through the first ten centuries, you know, uh, we share would share all all the same ones, and then uh, eleven centuries, and then uh, uh, even beyond that, we would revere and uh, acknowledge the holiness of those who have been. Uh, acknowledge the saints by the Eastern Church, and we don't not celebrate their feast on our our calendar. You know that they're not part of our our tradition, but we would s certainly still hold and revere them for their sanctity. And so we find, you know, uh, you know, our our Holy Father frequently quoting, you know, the saints from the Eastern tradition, and certainly within the Byzantine, you know, the e Eastern Catholic Christians, you know, there's a reverence of, of these saints as, as well, and a study of them, and so even within the Western Church, you know, the, the Eastern brothers who are in union with the Western Church have maintained this tradition for us as well. And so there, I think the Church in particular would be encouraging, you know, you know, Eastern Catholics to be maintaining their spiritual and liturgical traditions as much as possible. 
Any other thoughts before we move on? Yes, brother. <clears throat> um, someone asked about the dates of St. Maximus. Yes. Seventh century. Seventh century. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. And your name is? Uh, Joseph. Okay. I just had to write an enormous paper on that. Oh, did you? Okay. <laughs> so you just didn't have that at the forefront of your mind. Yeah. That's good. I don't feel so stupid now. <laughs> but thanks. I appreciate that. Okay. Why don't we just go back to the, the text here for a moment. Uh, St. Nicodemus, one of its compilers, describes the Philokalia as a mystical school of inward prayer. The pilgrim in the spiritual classic, The Way of the Pilgrim, which we already talked about, describes what the Philokalia meant to him in terms of tasting the sweetness of prayer that created in him a burning desire for union with God. Ah, how much new knowledge, how much wisdom that I never yet possessed was revealed to me in this book. As I began to put it into practice, I tasted a sweetness I could not have imagined until now. Often I spent an entire day sitting in the forest, carefully reading the Philokalia and learning many wondrous things from it. My heart burned with a desire for union with God through interior prayer. Uh, should be said that uh, this pilgrim wasn't just somebody who didn't want to work and was wandering around. Uh, he was uh, physically disabled, and so uh, he wasn't able to, to find work often, and it was in this inability to work, and he had been married uh, prior to these journeys that he then uh, makes this decision that he wants to enter into this spiritual life more fully, and so he has this opportunity to, to live this life of a pilgrim and, and to study the, the Philokalia and then is able to purchase a copy of it for himself. Okay. It's interesting to know the full title of it. It's not just Philokalia. And I'll give you the full title here. It's the Philokalia of the Sacred spiritual, Spiritually Wakeful Individuals Compiled from Our Holy and God-Bearing Fathers by which the mind is purified, illumined, and perfected through practical and ethical philosophy. <laughs> it's sort of a mouthful, so I think we'll stick to Philokalia. Uh, in the group here, but it gives you a sense of how they are, are looking at it, that this is you know, rooted in uh, God-fearing men who, who lived this life. Uh, so it wasn't simply an intellectual practice in the writing out of these, of these sayings within the Philokale. It arises out of their experience and out of their ascetical life. And in fact, I read something today uh, in an article that a Roman Catholic priest was visiting Athos and he asked about the Philokalia and, and he said, oh, your, your monks read that. And he said, yes, and they, they live it out too. And the Catholic priest said, well, in, in the West, it's only our scholars who read it. And the, the monk that he was talking to him said that even if they were, all the writings were lost, they would be able to write new ones because they were living the life out in all of its fullness. So they were theologians in the fullest experience, or fullest meaning of, of the word, that they lived the life, had an experiential knowledge of God, that would have then given them a cap capacity to write it all out again in one form or another, that it wasn't just this notional reality for them. So, you know, our whole understanding of theology and the study of theology in the West would uh, be completely foreign uh, to the Eastern monastics, and still is. 
you know, that we would have schools of theology that are purely places of academic research that aren't tied to spiritual formation and the ascetical life, that it's almost, you know, it makes no sense to them, would make no sense to them whatsoever. I mean, they might see the, the value perhaps in the witness of one's, you know, fidelity to the truth in that study, you know, but that's about it that they would see in terms of the value of our, our, our modern day schools. And uh, I ha happen to agree with them on that, you know, to, to study and get a PhD in theology outside of, you know, seeking to live the life. You know, how, how does one do that ab abstracted from a relationship with God? How does one study the things about God outside of seeking him and outside of the life of grace? I think I saw a hand over here. No? Okay. So, uh, philokalia, and when we look at the next uh, paragraph here, the English translators describe the philokalia in these terms. The philokalia is an, is an itinerary through the labyrinth of time, a silent way of love and gnosis through the deserts and emptiness of life, especially of modern life, of vivifying and a vivifying and fadeless presence. It is an active force revealing a spiritual path and inducing man to follow it. It is a summons to him to overcome his ignorance, to uncover the knowledge that lies within, to rid himself of illusions, and to be receptive to the grace of the Holy Spirit who teaches all things and brings all things to remembrance. And so, there are two different meanings, very beautifully said, I think, but there are two different meanings of the word philokalia. One is uh, like anthology. And so when you look at the, the work on the surface, you would say, yes, this is just a gathering of writings of diverse group of men with no underlying themes. It's just a compendium of works. Or... It is the, the love of the beautiful that is uh, a life of holiness. Uh, Dostoevsky said there's been only one, one truly beautiful human being, and that is Jesus Christ. And so we seek to live a holy life, a life of virtue, to become beautiful as he was. We are to be living icons of Christ within the world, so we embrace this life of asceticism, of prayer, of, of great discipline in order to become more and more transformed and conformed into to his image. Uh, Callistus Ware, uh, one of the translators of the English tradition, said there are three basic themes that if we look more closely at all of the volumes, there are three basic themes that are emerged that we can keep in mind as we approach them, even though they seem very diverse. Uh, the first is interaction. So th their writings focus upon the interior life. They take for granted that we would be living a life uh, of charity, that we would be living in accord with the gospel, and that we would be living also uh, the sacramental and liturgical life of the church. So th there is a lot that's assumed 
uh, in the writings, that those who would be picking this up would all already be well-versed in the scriptures, seeking to live it, but also living the life of uh, the liturgical and devotional life of the church fully and be immersed in it. But uh, the focus uh, of the writings is on the interior life. So guarding the, the intellect, uh, the themes of Nepsis and he Hezekiah. So Nepsis would be, uh, we'll get to this late in later meetings, but watchfulness uh, of heart, a sort of guardedness of heart of one's thought, and the Hezekiah would be the stillness that would be the basic fruit of all the ascetical practices that are laid out for us in the text. Uh, they use the word intellect in an unusual way, so it might be good just to pause here for a moment. It's not intellect in the way that we think about it. That's certainly part of it, but the, the Greek word is nous, and um, the Perhaps the, the best English translation would be something like the eye of the heart that once purified uh, of the passions is enabled then to come to a vision of God uh, that then brings a person to a deeper union, perfection, and, and deification or you know, perfection in the life of grace. So they use intellect in a different way, and that's what makes it a little confusing when you start to read the text. You say, what were they talking about the intellect here all the time? And it doesn't seem to fit with what else that they're saying, but that's sort of what they're saying. It has more to do with uh, the deepest part of their being as, as human beings, and sort of like a lens that is to be purified through the ascetical life so that one has a greater clarity about truth, virtue, goodness. When you say the eye of the heart, is that what we would ordinarily call the spirit? Uh, it would be the heart would be an all-encompassing aspect of who we are as human beings, like the the very depth of who we are. So not simply the organ, but sort of the the deepest, truer part of who we are. Uh, maybe likened more to our conscience, perhaps would be the closer closer uh, thing that we might attach it to. But we'll, we'll get to this, I think, with a greater clarity when we touch upon the theme here further along in the book. Okay. The second uh, basic aim within, within the, these writings is what is called theosis. And this is the basic aim of the ascetical life as a whole. So a direct transforming union with God. So the, the idea behind Embracing this isn't simply to become great ascetics. The idea is to seek a deeper intimacy with, with God through a fuller embrace uh, of the gospel that we might see its truth more clearly and embrace it more fully and so then come to this experience of union and communion with God. And then the final aim is, uh, and the means for this deification or theosis is the continual invocation of the holy name. And so within this spirituality, we see as its centerpiece the practice of the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or sometimes it's Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mer mercy on me. And it's through the re repetition 
this unceasing praying of this prayer that the passions are gradually gradually purified and the the word the name of Jesus in particular and we have this certainly in the, in the west as well you know in terms of our understanding of the holy name of Jesus and uh, but and we talked about this at the last school of Christi meeting but there's almost this sacramental sense of the name of Jesus that it makes present what it signifies unlike our names Jan sort of captures your identity in some measure that oh, we begin to think of all these different things about who you are as a person all of your qualities but with the name of Jesus there's a power there that is is healing to us in the in the deepest and most profound way so this is why we wouldn't want to take the name of Jesus in vain and because of of its holiness but also because of the, the real power and healing that it brings to us so there's this incredible reverence of the name of Jesus but also an embrace of it as the centerpiece of of the prayer life the the repetition of it of it almost with one's breathing that is said continuously even as one is engaged in work and it's you know in the writings of the monks you'll find that you know through the continuous practice of it they find themselves being drawn into this encounter with God and deep intimacy with him so this is that's something certainly that we're going to want to explore deeply throughout this this semester since it's so much at the heart of their writings so it's three basic themes so I think as we you know approach it you know, our, your first impression might be, ah, I don't know if this is for me, I'm not following here. If we can keep in mind that, you know, these th three basic themes are in the background, it might keep us from getting discouraged with the task of sort of, of going through them. Okay. Were those three fairly clear? Were you following me? Yes. You say them again, one, two, three. Okay. <laughs> no. Uh, interaction. Uh -huh. So guarding the heart is the first. The second would be theosis or deification. And then the third would be the constant invocation of the holy name of Jesus or the Jesus prayer. So those, those three. I did on those printouts, uh, they're just uh, copies of what of little articles I wrote for the blog site uh, for this group. It's pittsburghoratory.blogspot.com if you're interested. I've written about 25 or 30 little posts uh, in preparation for, for this group. And so these are just handouts of that that capture, you can see on the bottom part of the first page, in fact, characteristics of philokalaic spirituality. Uh, all of them are found there, so you'll, you'll have them to take with you. But they also will be online. Okay, and while we jump back to the, the text. The following dialogue, nope, we already touched that, didn't we? Now, where are we? Okay, the following dialogue from the Way of the Pilgrim explains how the purpose of the Philokalia is not to replace, but to explain the deeper meaning of God's word. Read this book, the elder said. It's called the Philokalia, and it contains the full and detailed signs of constant interior prayer set forth by 25 holy fathers. The book is marked by a lofty wisdom 
and is so profitable to use that it is considered the foremost and best manual of the contemplative spiritual life. As the revered, I'm sorry, Nesiphorus said, it leads one to salvation without labor and sweat. The pilgrim then asked, is it then more sublime than the ho and holy than the Bible? No, it is not that, but it contains the clear explanations of what the Bible holds in secret and which cannot be easily grasped by our short-sighted understanding. I will give you an illustration. The sun is the greatest, the most resplendent, and the most wonderful of heavenly luminaries, but you cannot contemplate and examine it simply with unprotected eyes. You have to use a piece of artificial glass, which is many millions of times smaller and darker than the sun. But through this little piece of glass, you can examine the magnificent monarch of stars, delight in it, endure its fiery rays. Holy Scripture also is a dazzling sun. And this book, the Philokalia, is the piece of glass which we use to enable us to contemplate the sun and its imperial splendor. Listen now, I'm going to read to you a sort of instruction it gives on unceasing interior prayer. So the, the spiritual master here is basically telling him that it's through this lived experience of the spiritual life and the purification of the heart that we're able then to approach the divine wisdom of the scriptures with a greater clarity that we're able to read them and they're able to produce the fruit in us that we would desire by studying the Philokalia. And so it's a preparation, not that we would, it would exclude reading both at the same time, of course, but it's a preparation for a deeper, fuller reading. And I think we can see how that's true for us as well. When we're seeking to live the spiritual life out fully, when we're, we're prayers, we're, when we're fully immersed in the liturgical life of the church, the devotional life, that then our approach to the word of God uh, can deepen as well. We're able to listen on a deeper level because we've we formed our minds and our hearts in, in a more perfect fashion. And you can see why something like this would be needed for us now. We're immersed in a culture that is far different from the spirituality uh, of these writers where they're talking about guarding and watching the heart and the thoughts. It's thought that there are anywhere between, we have anywhere between 10,000 and 40,000 thoughts a day. <laughs> and so what do you do with all those? Do you let them all you know, sink into your mind and embrace them all uh, equally? Or do you become more discerning and discriminating? And how is it that you, you do that? Well, we live in a culture that's highly saturated in all kinds of, of noise, you know, through television, through the movies, through music, and we're constantly bombarded with noise as opposed to the deep silence that they're putting forward here and this deep kind of prayer and watchfulness of heart. Basically, what they're saying is that we take every thought captive, as the scriptures tell us, and bring it before Christ for his blessing or for his judgment. So they're, they're, they're calling us to this radical asceticism of the heart that we take even every, we love Christ so much that we take every thought captive and we bring it before him for his judgment and we examine it ourselves. We're discriminating. 
And that is a profound aestheticism. I think we're so used just to indiscriminately exposing ourselves to everything and as much as we possibly can, sometimes out of curiosity, sometimes out of our, out of our sinfulness. And so if, you know, I think it's a spirituality that's greatly needed in our, in our own day. And especially, I think, as people, for those who are living in a secular culture, who are living a busy life, this understanding of that call to holiness, but also to this kind of asceticism is very important. We're more and more likely to be pulled into what our culture tells us is good and valuable. And I think we need something to sort of help us take, take those thoughts and that idea captive and look at it in light of the writings of these great spiritual masters as well as in, as in the light of the gospel and in light of the cross. Okay. If uh, we were to look at the relevance of this today, you know, what would, you know, how would the writings of these guys who lived in the desert uh, of Egypt, you know, what, what would they have to say to us today? And how's, you know, how, how are they to bear fruit for us today? How are we to incorporate them? And it's an important question because I think when you pick it up and read it, you may say, ah, oh, this isn't for me. This can't possibly speak to my daily life. But I think when we, we look a little closer, we begin to see, especially when we're thinking in terms of this universal call to holiness, that there is a universal priesthood that we all participate in by virtue of our baptism. We're made one with Christ, and we're, so we're all called to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, to be merciful as He is merciful, and to imitate Christ in every way. And so we look to these writings and with an understanding that, you know, whether monk or layperson, we're called to embrace this life in all of its fullness. And I have some interesting little quotes here. Uh, one from St. Tikhon of Zadonsk, in the middle of the last page. He said, Do not be in a hurry to multiply the monks. The black habit does not save. The one who wears a white habit and has the spirit of obedience, humility, and purity, he is a true monk of interiorized monasticism. And I think this is our, our way in to studying their writings more fully, that we're interiorizing uh, the monastic life and, and spirituality. And we might think, well, how, how do we do that? And it would be through interiorizing uh, poverty, uh, obedience, and also chastity in our lives. And again, we might do that in a radically different way from those who embrace the monastic life, but poverty would be something that frees us up from the ascendancy of, of the material. So living in the world, we might seek to foster within our, our, our lives and, and our hearts this spirit of poverty, the poverty of Christ, that we wouldn't cling to material goods or the things of this world. And in fact, we would move and seek to move to a greater simplicity in our lives. So even if we're living in the world and we're required to have certain material goods and, and possessions as, as part of our life or part of our work, that we would still seek to live in the spirit of poverty and simplicity. And the same is true with chastity. It frees us from the ascendance uh, of the carnal. 
we live in a culture that's highly sexualized and you know at every turn we're confronted with images music again that that become deeply ingrained in the imagination and the memory and so seeking to live a life uh, of chastity of taking those thoughts captive of removing ourselves from the, those places and things that would expose ourselves, expose our imagination to those things, we would be embracing something of the, that this, the solitude and the discipline of, of the desert. They did it in a radical way, and so we can learn from their wisdom. They were able to penetrate the, the mysteries of the heart in a far deeper way. So when we look at, say, John Cassian's writings on the eight vices, uh, some of his insights on on, on lust are, are profound and, and can be a source of strength for us now as we would struggle with it in our, in our own day. So we would turn to these writings as, as a way of, of doing greater battle in our own life with the, the particular sins that, that afflict us, whether it is something like lust or avarice or, or anger. So we learn from their deeper immersion and deeper solitude and deeper immersion in the life of prayer, uh, we learn from what, what they gained and what they wrote to embrace it and, and draw it into our own life. And then finally, obedience. It would free us from the idolatry of the ego. And so you might say, well, who would I be obedient to? You know, I don't have a religious superior. And we might be obedient to our wife, our husband, or simply the reality of the married life, the demands of that life, of taking the responsibilities of taking care of our family, of our children. All of these things are ways where we would set aside the ego, set aside self-centeredness and, and selfishness, as well as seeking to serve others, you know, not simply out of our, our richness, but even out of our, our poverty. We would seek to make ourselves obedient as fully as we can to the demands of the gospel. But again, you know, called to that ra radical holiness that the monks felt themselves called to. That's not just meant for them, that we have to find a way of incorporating and embracing this kind of spirituality within our lives. Any thoughts about that? Comments? Yes. It is a little bit of a, I mean, it's quite a struggle living in the world of living this because mm -hmm. there's just a whole huge range, and maybe it depends on each individual, you know? Because I don't know, just when you think about clothes or something and living simply and not being attached to the material, you know, for, for a woman, for example, I have a friend who's a very simple person, you know, she's not attached to material things. But she buys nice things because you know they're they're an investment. You know, it's like you, there's just all of those all, all these things that go on in my head. Like, you know, do, how do you you can't be a monk necessarily in the world and just you know walk around in you know rags and right. That's <laughs> and, right. <you> know. <laughs> well, that's so, why I was saying in accord. Personal to that to each individual. That's right. You know? In accord with our station yeah. in life. Certainly, but I, I think we can see in the West that we're, you know, very given to a kind of materialism, whether we're religious priests 
or those you know living in the world and something that has a constant pull in our lives and so to be conscious become conscious of that and say you know how's my life really reflective of the life of Christ you know okay I'm not called to be walking around in rags like you know St. Francis or like one of these desert monks uh, you know I have a job and so maybe I have to wear a suit or you know an outfit that is representative of that but you know how far do I go in my personal life what things do I really need to to live my life and to live it you know in a way where I can raise a family and to live well enough but you know to live that simply so that I don't get caught up in those things and they don't become my God you know that I have the simplicity of life that allows me then to keep my focus upon upon Christ and upon prayer look at all the things that we have that become distractions for us and that's true for me too I'm a techno geek and if a new iPhone comes out, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I've got it right here. <laughs> We're using it to record this. And, uh, but so it's, it's difficult. And, uh, you know, with computers and all that, we have this instant access to things that engage our mind. When that time could be spent in either serving others or living a life uh, of prayer, uh, immersing ourselves in the silence or studying the scriptures, or spending time with our, our family, like living out the vocation of, of, of married life more fully. You know, th think, of, think of the busyness and the drive that takes over people's lives because they feel that they have to have so many of these things and so they neglect their fundamental vocation. So they, they work like dogs in order to provide all these material things for their family and yet there's no unity and love often within the family because they're all out doing their own thing and the same thing can happen within religious communities too and so i think it's immensely important and again we're, we can't we have to try to do it within our station in life and we understand we have to understand okay we're not monks and so we aren't trying, and it would be ridiculous and wrong for us to try to start living their, their lifestyle. But we can still embrace the wisdom, the truth of what they discovered through their ascetical and spiritual lives and apply to our own. And when we struggle to do that, we seek out spiritual counsel you know, from those who are seeking to and have sought to live it themselves for years. We seek their, their guidance through it so that we aren't walking that path alone because we know how easy it is to to get off track and lo lose our way certainly the pull of the things in the culture are going to be you know much greater than the pull of sitting down and reading the desert fathers so any other mm -hmm. I, you used the term a couple times the asceticism of the heart and which is the point being that it's not asceticism of the body, so that you don't necessarily have to live the life of a monk. In fact, it could be even harder to live our busy lives and have an aesthetic heart 
ascetic heart in the midst of that. So it seems to me as though it wouldn't really matter if you had, you know, the latest iPhone 5 and, and if your daily schedule was, you know, 50,000 telephone calls and emails, that theoretically you, you could be able to live the, the ascetic life in the midst of all of that if your heart were in a, a pure state. Is that well, kind of the, the gist of what... Well... I think they would say that the ascetical life is still essential for those living within the world. Again, in accord with one station. So, deep prayer, fasting, almsgiving, you know, all, all the practices that, you know, that we are taught to embrace, we, we should be seeking to incorporate those into our lives as fully as we can. And there's a little quote on the last page handout that I gave you from St. John Chrysostom. It's the middle of the top paragraph. And so, sorry, Jan, this is what St. John Chrysostom said. He was sort of harsh, though, but uh, he says, uh, those who live in the world, even though married, ought to resemble the monks and everything else. You are entirely mistaken if you think that there are some things required of seculars and others of monks. They will have the to have the same account to render. So prayer, fasting, reading of the scripture, ascetic discipline are imposed upon all by the same prescription. Uh, a little further down there, another writer says, the actual pluralism of the theologies of the episcopate, the clergy, religious, and laity being unknown at the time of the fathers would be even in... Uh, would be even incomprehensible to them. The gospel in its entirety is applicable to every particular problem and in any, any environment. And so there is a sense that we are to interiorize that life as a whole. Again, it's going to have to be modified. Certainly a person who's working eight hours a day or more is not going to be able to, to fast like one of these monks in the desert. Like, for example, they would have kept what was called a regular fast. They would have fasted every day for a 24-hour period, so they would typically eat their evening meal, but then they wouldn't eat again until that time the next day. And they did this for a number of reasons, that it wouldn't lead them into pride, so they wouldn't extend the fast beyond that 24 hours, uh, and then that they wouldn't also weaken themselves too much, and then gorge themselves and fall into gluttony after they would break their fast. So they would limit it to this 24-hour period. But still, that's very rigorous. Uh, we, I don't think, would be able to sustain that very long. You know, one meal a day living in the world, having to be much more active. We might be able to embrace that in some measure, like on a particular day. Uh, we might embrace that kind of fast, you know, once a week on like on a Friday or something like that and incorporate certain aspects of that into our life, but not living the regular fast that these these desert monks would live. But we're still called... Or even something as simple as, you know, not having the 3 o'clock snicker in the afternoon. That's right. You know, it still could... You know, I don't think that, that it really needs to be a radical... Right. Um, ...change in life towards monastic lifestyle, but that those things can be incorporated into a very busy That's life. right. But that's it. That's incorporating it as a whole, I think, is what Chrysostom is saying there. That we, simply because we live in the world, we can't exempt ourselves from it. Like even Philip Neri didn't emphasize the external practices. 
you know, in the same way that the religious of his day did. But the guy ate like a few olives and maybe an egg and a piece of bread, you know, each day. It wasn't like he was uh, a big eater because he saw this significance of it for the spiritual life, to be humbled in body and mind in order to be able to pray and seek one's sustenance and nourishment on the love of God, you know, to, you know, deepens one's prayer life. He understood that. And so he had incorporated it in large measure, but that was over the course of a long period of time. But that's true for all of us here as well. We cannot neglect the practice of fasting, which we have in the Western church. I mean, it was more of a regular part of our spiritual life as, as a body. And now it's often limited for many people to Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. And there's even a sense of where people are letting go of the Friday abstinence too now, you know, without embracing some other kind of, of, of ascetical practice. So we have gotten away very much from this deeply ascetical life that is being put forward here, thinking in some way that perhaps this is not meant for us as seculars. You know, we live in the world, we're busy doing big and important things, we're movers and shakers, let the, you know, the, the religious do that for us, you know, this, live this kind of love, life. They're the holy ones. And, but that's a rationalization. You know, we're called to the same holiness and perfection that they're called to within our, our station of life. And is there an, an, another way of doing that outside of the practices that we see Jesus himself embrace and that these, these fathers teach us. And I would hazard to say no, there isn't, that we would modify them, but we, we still have, have to embrace them. We still have to order our, our passions. And how do we do that without deep prayer, without, you know, without something like fasting in our life? You know, gluttony is very closely tied to lust. You know, the inability to control one's appetite in one area limits one's ability to control one's other bodily appetite, you know, our sexual appetites. And so they saw the, the two very, you know, intimately linked together. So, you know, we live in this world that we're confronted with things on a daily basis. How are we going to survive if we're not living a, a deeply ascetical life? Any other comments? How much would you say motive has to do with this philosophy? Motive in what sense? I mean, how? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? To know union with God. But is it always? I mean, if we go into fasting okay. and some mm -hmm. of the other right. things. Yeah, we have to be guarded, and that's why this spiritual counsel is often necessary, because we can fall into this delusion that living the ascetical life alone makes us holy. And within the writings, they're clear that that's, that's not so. St. John Cassian, when coming back to your question of motive, in his conferences says there's an immediate end or immediate goal and an ultimate and the ultimate end would be the kingdom of God, union with uh, our Heavenly Father. 
the immediate goal would be purity of heart. So our immediate motive would be purity of heart, that we might come to see the truth, that we might set aside our illusions about ourselves and turn to God more fully, that we would seek him out, that we would turn from our sin, from the world, to him. But there is this danger of it just becoming ascetics. That's why Jesus, you know, the gospel that we read on Ash Wednesday is always, always seems ironic to me because we're smearing our heads with ashes and Jesus is saying, you know, don't publicize your spiritual practices because then if you do so, you have your reward. You're known as an ascetic. You're known as a philanthropist. And what was the other one? Almsgiving, fasting, and what was this, the third one? Somebody help me out here. Prayer. 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 Yeah, you're known as a, a great prayer, you know, a, a holy person. So you're known by others in the world, and you even see yourself as that, but that's your, your, your reward. So asceticism, just for the sake of asceticism, isn't necessarily going to lead us to God. You know, the, the, the goal, goal behind this does have to be very clear. That's why Cassian says this immediate motive of purity of heart is so important because otherwise it can be a, a false light. Uh, you know, the word <laughs> infatuation, it, actually, that the, the meaning of that word, the etymology of that word is false light. And the image behind it is that of a fire in the desert at night. And travelers who are lost would see a light off in the distance. And they would often, you know, head towards that light for its warmth and the presence of others. But it would actually be an optical illusion that would be created in the desert. And so they would be traveling off in the wrong direction, heading towards this false light. And so Cassian says exactly this, you know, if we embrace this only you know, out of, you know, pure asceticism, you know, or, you know, the, out of this, you know, self-centered spirituality, it's going to be exactly that. We'll be expending an awful lot of energy, but we'll be heading off in the wrong direction <laughs> altogether, not towards Christ and the kingdom, but off into this, you know, false self, false image. Good question, though. Okay, why don't we just finish up this, this chapter. Bishop Callistus Ware counsels that the Philokalia is not an easy book to read. He advises the reader to prepare for it by beginning with two other books, which consist of simpler texts from the Philokalia, the writings of the Philokalia on prayer, which is the one volume that I showed you, and the Art of Prayer by Igamen, I don't know how you pronounce his name, Cheriton of Alamo. To help the reader better understand the spirituality of the Philokalia, we shall now take a brief look at some of the principal terms one encounters in reading this classic, offering a brief explanation of each concept. These key words will serve to introduce the reader to a deeper meaning of the Philokalia. And so that's what I hope to do. I mean, I think this is actually, uh, before going to the books that Ware talks about, this is the, like the baby step to that, which is to give us the vocabulary even to understand what we, what we are, are reading. Uh, this author, Anthony uh, Conieris, also wrote another book that I think I saw somebody in the room had a copy of it. It's called The Philokalia, The Bible of Orthodox Spirituality. Did you have it? Okay, yes. 
uh, written by the same author, where he develops the, the principal themes in this uh, with greater depth. And so if you're interested in doing some additional reading on your own, uh, that's available through Amazon and a wonderful, wonderful read. And I'll hopefully be pulling some of the excerpts from the Philokalia that he uses to help guide us through the, the various principles that we'll be looking at. And again, I've already written about 30 uh, posts on this if you also would like to do some additional reading and preparation for the meetings. I want to keep it to about an hour at the most each week, just so it stays fresh. Uh, a lot of it's very dense, and I think if we try to go beyond that, uh, we'll just make ourselves weary. But uh, hopefully we'll be able to get into some of the text next time as well. Any final comments, questions? Thoughts about how you would, are you comfortable with this format? Any ways that you would like to improve it? Perhaps me talking less would be good. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. How far, I mean, I guess we can read ahead as much as we want, but what do you plan on covering? Only one chapter at a time. Yeah, yeah because uh, the terms are so dense and the principles so dense that I think it'll take us a while. It'll take us that hour to give it a good look. And so we don't want to rush through it. Okay. So this will be a weekly group. I want to move the start time to 7.30. Our evening exercises here at the oratory with the fathers upstairs goes until 7.15. And uh, so I really need the extra time to get down here. So if it's all right, next week at 7.30 to 8.30. But we'll keep it to that one hour sharp. Okay. Well, thank you. It's uh, great to finally have the opportunity to, to go through this. And won't we, we close with a, a prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. And uh, don't hesitate uh, to bring things forward that don't seem to make sense to you, or if your understanding of them is different. Um, I'm certainly no expert in the Philokalia. You know, I love it. I've studied it, uh, but I don't claim to know everything about it. So if you. Uh, have some things that you'd like to bring to the group, please don't hold back. Okay. Thank you and have a great week. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much.